Welcome to Positivity Strategist, a podcast that injects a good deal of optimism and possibility into your life at home and at work. Conversations with thought leaders and everyday people shine the light on what works and amplifies those everyday micro moments of positivity, irrespective of what else is going on. You'll be energized by lots of practical tips, inspiring you to live a truly satisfying and meaningful life. My guest this week is Andy Smith. Andy focuses on bringing a positive emotional climate within organizations using a number of methodologies such as NLP, emotional intelligence and appreciative inquiry. Here's a sneak preview. Listen in to Andy. We have within us, I believe, everything we need to make the changes that we want to. And, and we could look at that at an individual level, at a team level, at an organizational level. Now let's start with our regular segment, the Positivity Lens Activity. Regular listeners know I do this each week as a way to strengthen our positivity muscle and to hone our ability to view people and situations through multiple lenses. Remember what you focus on grows. Last week's Positivity Lens activity was for episode positivitystrategist.com slash PS20 with Susan Mazza. I hope you downloaded the Positivity Lens activity sheet from the show notes page of episode PS20 to guide you to think about your own leadership. Remember, in my conversation with Susan, our frame of reference for leadership was about our own everyday leadership and how we source that whatever the context. I invited you to think about how you're showing up every day and speaking up with your own voice and about having clarity about your purpose and what really matters to you. And there were a couple of biggies. What's the source of your power and what generates or ignites the leader in you? And what are your aspirations as a leader? What's the difference you want to make in your relationships and your world? Having your responses to these kinds of questions will make a big difference in your own leadership. I'm excited that I'm speaking with Andy Smith today. Andy joins us from France, specifically Limousin in central France. And I'm especially excited to be speaking with Andy Smith of coachingleaders.co.uk because Andy's an emotional intelligence consultant, an NLP trainer, and an appreciative inquiry facilitator. Andy's authored two books and has a range of NLP products and is a seasoned podcaster. Andy, thank you for joining me today. Uh, it's a pleasure, Robin. Thank you very much for inviting me. Of course. So let me just say that, as most of you will know, links to all of Andy's services and products are available on the show notes page to this episode, which is positivitystrategist.com slash PS21. Now, a few words to set the context for Andy. Andy Smith is another professional I met on Twitter several years ago. And I was especially drawn to Andy because he's not only an appreciative inquiry practitioner, but also a certified neuro-linguistic programming trainer, and that's NLP. It's always exciting to connect to someone with similar areas of professional interest and trainings, 
And from my perspective, NLP and AI are a lovely pair. And we're going to talk about this lovely pair in this episode. Andy, what came first for you? Well, NLP predated AI for me by about 10 years, I think. So yeah, I was working as a hypnotherapist back in the uh, mid-90s, but my training in hypnotherapy was not the best. It was okay, you know, I could get results with clients, but not as consistently as I'd like, and I couldn't always make sense of what I was doing. And in uh, 1995, I went on a conference in Crete and met some NLP practitioners who impressed me very much on a personal level. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll start looking into this. I discovered a process in a, an NLP book about hypnosis called Transformations by Richard Bandler and John Grinder called The Six-Step Reframe. And I tried this out with a client to help them out with, I can't remember what the habit was that they were aiming to shift. It was something like nail biting, something like that. And this process that I pretty much read out of the book with no training worked much better than anything I'd actually been trained in. So from that moment, I was absolutely hooked with NLP. Couldn't wait to find out more and more about it. And of course, with NLP, hypnosis is kind of a subset of that, isn't it? Because I remember I did timeline therapy when I did my NLP. Uh, sure, yeah, timeline therapy, which I use a lot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because NLP, as, as most of your listeners will know, I'm sure, one of the disciplines that NLP was based on was modeling the hypnotherapist Milton Erickson. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge amount of hypnosis, careful use of language in, involved in NLP. Mm-hmm. But very often, what we might call a waking trance rather than that kind of swinging a watch and you are getting sleepy. Mm. Uh, <laughs> kind of traditional image of hypnosis. Mm. Because I I actually believe that if you define a trance as being a narrowed down focus of attention where we're more aware of some things and less aware of others, that we're in a trance most of the time, really. There are very few occasions, maybe, maybe when meditation's going really well or something like that, where we're aware of everything that's going on. Most of the time we're our attention is focused down. Mm, that's a really nice way of explaining it. And in fact, in saying that, thanks, I, 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 I can see a connection to appreciative inquiry there as well, in particularly the poetic principle. Given that we're only giving our attention to a subset of what's going on around us, we may as well look at the, the positive stuff and what benefits us rather than focusing on problems and, uh, and misery, I guess. Yeah, and let's develop that in a little while because I also want to understand or or hear from you your introduction to appreciative inquiry because already you're doing NLP for 10 years as I understand and you Uh had done hypnosis before that. So tell me about the introduction to AI. How did that happen for you? Okay, yeah, I discovered or found out about AI actually from a book that I bought at an emotional intelligence conference in Florida in about 2001-ish, around that time, because I'd become interested in emotional intelligence because NLP, I think, gives a really good toolkit for developing the various areas of emotional intelligence. Mm. So I started attending these emotional intelligence conferences and there were some books on sale there and one of the books that I picked up was 
called the uh, the Thin Book of Appreciative Inquiry, mm-hmm. which is a I, I think a really good little introductory book. Many of your readers, many of your listeners, rather, will know it. I'm sure it's mm-hmm. a, it lives up to its name. It is really thin and explains appreciative inquiry in a in a very simple and accessible way. Yeah, we'll make a link and to so, that. Yeah. Mm. Sue Hammond wrote that one. So you found this book at the conference at an EQ conference. Yeah, and I took it home with me and I read it and I thought, oh, that's that's interesting, an interesting method. Uh, I wonder if I could do anything with that. <laughs> and I kind of didn't think too much more about it until a couple of years later when some consultants who'd been students of mine on an NLP practitioner course, they got very interested in appreciative inquiry. They got so interested in it that they clubbed together and they commissioned Anne Radford, who is one of the leading lights for appreciative inquiry in the UK, to come and do a short training for them. And they invited me and I uh, thought, okay, yeah, this will expand my skill set. And I went along had this training. It's uh, a thing to get your head around, really. First time you encounter uh, appreciative inquiry in the, in the flesh, as it were. There were some very inspiring videos and the questions I kind of knew about theoretically, but of course, doing them in a live training is, is different. And I, This is great. Will I, will I ever be able to use it? Not sure. My fellow participants in that workshop didn't have those doubts, though. They, they went right off and formed a company to actually run appreciative inquiry facilitation and events, mainly for public sector organizations in the UK. They were working away with that, and they used to run quite big AI summit events with maybe, maybe 100 or 120 people attending. And uh, because there were only three of them, they also needed people to act as table facilitators as well. Mm-hmm. So they invited me to be a table facilitator at some of these, um, some of these events, which were great, by the way. They were um, kind of directors of social services, frontline staff, managers, users of, say, mental health services, sometimes coming along with their carers, all sitting around the same table having structured conversations about how to improve the service. It, it was great. And that, that was kind of my live introduction to appreciative inquiry how it can work in practice. And it's just, uh, well, you know yourself, it's really inspiring to see people come in more or less as normal and not really knowing what's going on. And as the day goes through, they become really inspired in, in building their dream of the future together and, and then coming up with really, really great ideas for improving a service or improving a product. That's great. A um, couple of things there, Andy. So just curious, so when you did that training, I'm making an assumption here based on what you've said that you saw appreciative inquiry as more of a large-scale summit kind of intervention as opposed to using it one-on-one or in a coaching way. Am I making that assumption correctly? Yes, you're, you're absolutely correct in, in making that assumption because that's really what the training was about and that's what my first experiences mm. of appreciative inquiry were about. Mm-hmm. Later on, these same people that, that I did the course with and that set up the consultancy were aiming to get a contract for training all the middle managers in a, a local authority in the appreciative inquiry method with half a day's training. And... <laughs> 
They, there was another part of that contract, which was about um, training them in coaching skills, which is like another half day training that we were asked to provide. And because I have more experience in coaching, mm. they, they asked me to uh, help them with that, with that part of the bid. So I put a model together. Initially, initially it was, uh, I, I was trying to kind of positive up the GROW model, the well-known you know, kind of standard coaching model, the GROW model, and make it more consistent with the priesthood inquiry. So I came up with a thing called the open model. It was basically taking each stage of the GROW model and making it outcomes, possibilities, something mm-hmm. else, and making it more positive. One of the difficulties with that, though, that we discovered when I piloted it was that if you start looking at the diagram of it in the wrong place, it spells nope rather than uh, open. <laughs> so that pilot didn't actually go that well. We went back to the drawing board and actually thought, okay, we'll use appreciative inquiry as a mm-hmm. coaching model because that will fit very nicely. Mm-hmm. So we developed this use of appreciative inquiry as a coaching model, which I know has been, other people have, have done that before. We use some elements from solution focus like scaling mm. and uh, the miracle question. Very nice. Which, which fit very nicely with the appreciative inquiry model. In the last years, the application of appreciative inquiry has moved beyond that large scale, just as you're saying. And mm. I mean, I use it one on one in coaching. And I think the 4D cycle, which is the discover, the dream, the design, and destiny, fit just as well whether you're coaching one person or whether you're actually doing a whole organizational summit. Because for me, I mean, you talked about the inspiration that you get when you do an appreciative increase summit or something large scale, and you get the community, the members, the organizational players working together and dreaming and designing stuff. But for me, I love that very first intimate Mm. discovery interview. To me, that t- it just sets the scene for when you discover a, a personal story that somebody has to share about a particular topic. And that's how NLP preceded appreciative inquiry by about the same time frame. I was doing my NLP practitioner and then master training in the late 90s. And then I discovered AI in the early 2000s. And when I went off, I thought when I heard about that first or experienced the discovery interview, I thought it was like NLP because you're asking people to recall a time when they felt most blah, whatever it was, you know, know, in, in whatever the topic. So if you're exploring leadership with somebody, tell me a time of when you felt most in your power as a leader or whatever it is. And so what you're inviting people is to play that movie of when they felt most powerful and when they got to their strengths and when they started to value all those things. That's the connection that I made. And I actually went to David Cooper Ryder and I said, this to me is so much like NLP. (laughs) I mean, he's very gracious, as you know. Just inviting people to go back and recall a personal experience or a personal story just brought up NLP for me. What might you say to that? Well, Robin, I'm, I'm, you'll be amazed, but that kind of link with anchoring, for example, in mm-hmm. NLP had never occurred to me before, but you're absolutely right that it is just like that. Mm, anchoring, I'd forgotten the term. Say more about that. Well, anchoring is something that NLP really kind of cribbed from Pavlovian conditioning, where the idea is you get somebody into some kind of positive state or you get yourself into some kind of positive state Mm -hmm. and you associate a stimulus with it 
And if you've done it correctly and the state is strong enough or you repeat the stimulus enough times in association with the state, then you can bring back that good emotional state anytime you recall the stimulus. So you might be, you might say a particular word to yourself, you might see an image in your mind, you might have a particular bit of music or make a particular physical gesture with your, with your hand or your fingers. And that will bring back a positive or resourceful emotional state when you most need it. Because when we're facing difficulties, we're not usually in a very resourceful state. We might feel anxious, we might feel fearful, we might feel angry. And actually, we perform much better and respond to those challenges much better if we felt good or strong or curious or even humorous. It can be very useful to have those kind of emotional states on tap, as it were, so that you can bring them to bear in the moment so that you can respond much better. I mean, I'm sure your your listeners are aware of the research by, what's what's she called? Barbara Fredrickson. (laughs) Barbara Fredrickson, thank you, that, um, that our actual cognitive abilities and our abilities to think strategically and creatively are enhanced when we're actually feeling good. Absolutely. So, yeah, so we respond mm. to challenges better. So the other idea from NLP that, that you've made me think of there with the discovery stage is that emotions and learning are somewhat dependent on our emotional state. We can, for example, remember when we're feeling good, it's easier to remember other good times we've had or uh, other in a, in a corporate setting, other instances of when we've achieved something that would be relevant and useful in, with the problem we're facing now. If you're feeling miserable, it's not so easy to recall good times or achievements. So what we're doing with those discovery questions of, uh, you know, tell me about uh, a peak experience in, in your work or uh, Tell me about one of the best things that's happened to you while you've been working here. What we're doing there is getting somebody into an emotional state where a positive emotional state where they can recall more things that will be useful to them, where they'll be more likely to have creative ideas that will help them to deal with whatever challenge they're working on and so on. So state dependent memory and learning is the other thing that's reminds me of in NLP. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you for saying all of that because, yes, you've brought back a whole lot of stuff for me as well, certainly Barbara Fredrickson's work and seeing the value of positive emotions that help us to access more resourceful states. I think that's wonderful. And um, I'm reminded of her broaden and build theory, right? I think that's what you're alluding to there and how positive emotions really enhance the way we learn, the way we interact with people. If we can really develop that positivity within us, then it helps us to overcome a lot of the negative that comes up to us naturally. We do live in this world of a negative bias. So maybe you'd like to Mm -hmm. go there because I know that NLP is also another very helpful way to overcome situations of negativity. Yeah, One of the aspects of NLP that I found very useful is the idea of everything that we do, every every behavior that we do has a positive intention behind it. Mm. So very often this is looking at it from a therapy or even a coaching point of view where people have specific problems. They go to a therapist with problems that they want to fix and they absolutely hate their 
habit that they do or the behavior that they do or the emotional response that they have without seeming to be able to have any kind of control over it. So people who smoke, for example, you'll very often get those people saying, oh, this is a filthy habit at the very moment when they're lighting up another cigarette. One of the most effective ways to help that I found when I was using NLP in therapy was to treat any unwanted behavior as actually something that's got some kind of positive intention behind it, even though that positive intention may be unconsciously held and even though it may not be very effective at achieving or fulfilling that positive intention. So, for example, the behavior of smoking might be, it may have come about originally because somebody wanted to feel grown up or they wanted to rebel against parental restrictions or school restrictions Maybe they also feel it helps them when they're nervous in social situations, assuming there are any social situations left where you can still light a cigarette up. You can ask the person's unconscious mind fairly easily, if there was a positive intention behind that behavior, what would that be? And they think about it and usually they'll come up with something which may or may not be positive or they may not recognize as positive. So if it isn't, you can ask them again, and what's the highest purpose of that? Mm. And they'll come up with some other answer. And you keep asking until you get up to something which is really, really kind of overarching and, and almost, uh, almost like their life purpose. There, there's a, a whole process that's been built around this called Core Transformation by Connie Ray Andreas and Tamara Andreas, which asks what's the highest purpose of this like chunking up it's exactly it is a form of chunking up because Mm. it's going up to the intention yeah uh behind the behavior or the value behind the behavior yeah Yeah. so it's going up from the concrete level of the behavior Mm -hmm. up to the intention which is invariably trying to make things better for Mm. the person and i love what you're saying because you know this is one of the presuppositions and i'm having to dig deep back into my old knowledge base. But that was actually one of the presuppositions, like every behavior has a positive intent in some Mm -hmm. context. So this is what you're describing. So I think this is really helpful. Let's take anger, for example. You know, if you're feeling angry, what might be the positive intention behind anger? Well, it may be emotions. No, you're talking about behaviors. Well, I'm We can treat emotions as behaviors because, you know, it's something that happens in your body. Certain chemicals are released and people experience emotions as things that happen to them, usually rather than things that they deliberately choose. So we can class those under the broadest definition of behaviors as well. So angry behavior, right? Angry behavior. Okay. So it will be the best choice that the person can think of at that moment And it may have been something they learned to do when they were very small, or it may be something that has worked for them in the past, maybe in the context that they're in now isn't working for them so well. You know, they could have been like at school, they could have been um, maybe one of the sort of tougher kids and got respect that way. But if they grow up and they work in an office, then generally settling problems with your fists is frowned upon. So... Mm as is uh, yelling at people. So maybe that behavior is not so useful anymore. But the intention behind it could have been to protect themselves, to act as a warning when their boundaries are being overstepped, to try and build up their self-esteem. 
could could be any of those reasons. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. So where I'm also thinking about this right now is what you focus on grows. That's where, for me, focusing on positive outcomes or positive experiences or positive emotions, you're more likely to be able to strengthen that capacity within yourselves to access that. And we already spoke about that when we were talking about anchoring and so on. And so if we wanted to reframe anger, is this core transformation part of what you would do or could you get them to shift from saying some stop focusing on the anger and remembering all those angry stories that you had but let's now focus on when a time when anger was absent and what what were you experiencing then you could get them to do that i'm not sure how successful you'd be with it if the person was angry with you right there and then and was in your face about it, but um, there, there are a number of ways of dealing with it. One of them would be the kind of timeline therapy approach, which is mm-hmm. uh, essentially saying that what you're angry about may not be justified in the current situation. It could be based on a load of unresolved emotional baggage about stuff you've been angry with in the past that the current situation reminds you of. So if you learn what you need to learn from the past, then you can let go of the emotion now. That might be one way of dealing with it. Another way, and this would probably work better with like irritation rather than the rage kind of anger. Mm. But if somebody is constantly angry with their situation or their job or their boss or their partner or whatever, they may have just forgotten about all the things that actually are working for them in that situation and all the things they enjoy about it, which they're putting at risk by getting so angry. So it can be very, very helpful for them to focus on what's good and what they're grateful for. Mm. And of course, there's the other thing which massively predates NLP, which is that idea from the Stoic philosophers or maybe even earlier than, than that, which is that we don't get angry about what happens, we get angry about our perception of it mm. Absolutely. and about what we think about it. There's a quote by uh, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus, which I'm <laughs> kind of mangling there, but that's the basic idea. So if we stick a label on a particular stimulus or a particular situation or even a particular emotion as this is something to be angry about, this is a bad thing and I must get angry about it or I must get embarrassed about it or I must get frightened of it, that's what will happen. Whereas if we can frame it in another way, then we can choose a different response. This might be a good time to mention, actually, uh, a really excellent article that I uh, read the other day pointing up some research uh, by, well, the article was by Julia Galef in Slate.com. The method that she's talking about is called keeping a surprise journal. I'm sure that your listeners are familiar with the idea of confirmation bias, which is the idea that our minds filter incoming information depending on what beliefs we hold. So any evidence or incoming information that supports those beliefs we tend to amplify and take notice of. And anything that conflicts with those beliefs, we tend to play down or ignore altogether because we don't like being in two minds about things usually. We like, we like certainty. We like to know what we believe. So we all have confirmation biases. It's much, much easier to spot them in other people than it is in ourselves (laughs) because obviously we're filtering our own information. 
what this article by uh, Julia Gallif was pointing out was that generally, if our beliefs are mistaken in some way, eventually we find this out because we get surprised about something. Things don't turn out the way we expect. So we get a surprise. Now, most times we'll just forget about those surprises or explain them away in line with our existing beliefs. But actually, each surprise is an opportunity to learn. And the article talks about a science teacher. One of the toughest things, apparently, about teaching science to uh, teenagers is getting them to admit that they're wrong. So he got them all to keep a surprise journal where they had to note down in each school quarter, they had to note down at least 15 times that they were surprised and answer two questions about it. One is, why were you surprised about this? And the other one is, what does that tell you about yourself? So they were having to reflect on these surprises and learn from them. So all of a sudden, if they got something wrong, it wasn't a mistake, it was a surprise. And instead of being teased for being dumb or mistaken, all that happened is, oh, that's a surprise. Where's my surprise journal? I need to write this up. So it kind of grew a, a culture of learning from mistakes and reframing errors as surprises, which are much less threatening. If you feel you've made an error, you might feel defensive about it. You might feel you have to explain it away. If you've had a surprise, then that's just something that happens and it's something you can learn from. I think that's fantastic. That's it a, is fantastic, isn't yeah. it? I'm, I was really pleased to uh, find out about that. Yeah. And what came up for me as you were describing that, and again, you know, you're stimulating all this NLP stuff in me, is that similar hmm. to pattern interrupt or not? You could look at it that way yeah. um, because it's interrupting the usual pattern of, damn, I've made an error, and then going on to justify yourself or try and explain it away or deny that there's been an error. So it's doing something different. Mm. Pattern interrupt is more like kind of a surprising event that disrupts a well-worn pattern that, that you've been through, that you normally go through. Yeah, again, so, uh, yes, if you're trying to shift somebody out of a regular way of seeing things, right? Yeah. And so I'm just thinking, you know, with these, with these kids now, and you could use this in organisational context, of course, is that mm -hmm. if you start documenting all the things that, you're surprised about because they yep. don't go according to what you expected or you got information mm -hmm. that was um, contrary to what you were believing and you document it as a surprise and why was it a surprise and what did you learn from it? I think that's amazingly enlarging of our capacity to understand our own motivations and our own learnings and, and see bigger perspectives about what's going yeah. on. It's really broadening. I think that's fabulous. Yes. This is what made me think as well, how nicely this would tie in with AI, which is that it's much easier to do something like keeping that surprise journal and keeping it going if everyone else is doing it as well. So mm -hmm. if you're in a culture of doing that, you get behavioral reinforcement for keeping your surprise journal, whereas if you're trying to do it on your own, you're pretty much dependent on your own motivation mm. to, to keep going. If everyone's doing it, if it's expected, if it becomes like the natural thing, the habitual thing, then it's so much easier to, uh, to keep it going and you can learn from other people's insights and so on. I just want to say a big difference that I found with appreciative inquiry 
as compared to NLP. And, and one of the things that made it so attractive for me is NLP, although you can use it in group contexts, fundamentally it comes from looking at individuals. One definition of NLP is the study of the structure of subjective experience. So it's about what happens within a person. Whereas appreciative inquiry is all about what happens between people, people in a group and what emerges from a group, which is more than the sum of the individuals. Oh, I like that very much, the way that you've made the distinction between the two. So Andy, I'm wondering, is there anything else that you would like to say in regarding the way that you have taken this body of knowledge, this body of work? You know, what are some of the products or some of the ways that you are now communicating your learnings and sharing your insights with people and training people? I know you've written books, you've created products, you've done podcasts. So how's that been for you and and what else do you have on the horizon that you're creating? Well, I... uh... I must say I do absolutely love writing books and uh, e-books actually now is what I'm writing. I'm doing a series, an NLP series, gradually sort of going through the whole of NLP in fairly short e-books. In terms of making NLP and appreciative inquiry my own and, and maybe creating something that wasn't there before that uh, other people can use, I found it really useful to take some of the tools or the, the methods of NLP and applying them at particular stages in the appreciative inquiry cycle, mm-hmm. and particularly in getting from the design to the, as you've called it, destiny phase. I, I tend to go the other way and call it the delivery mm-hmm. uh, stage of appreciative inquiry just because I think it's more business-friendly for the, for the audiences that I'm working with. It's easier for them to understand. Um, I, I know there are uh, kind of two schools of thought about this within the appreciative inquiry community. At the moment, I'm leaning towards delivery. But anyway, getting from the dream stage to the delivery stage, Mm -hmm. for me, with the AI books that I've read, the vaguest bit of those books for me is always where they talk about the design stage and how you get from dream to delivery. Mm -hmm. And there are various methods from NLP that you can employ as group processes to help people to get from one to the other easily and quickly. There's a particular one, and and this will be applicable if you're working with, say, a team, Mm -hmm. um, because I I do quite a few kind of one-day, they're like AI summits, but uh, just with a team of like 12 people, maybe a management team, and possibly where they're working on some specific problem and they want to come out at the end of the day with some kind of plan of what they can do. So we start going through the AI cycle with discovery and dream and so on. Mm-hmm. And whichever aspects of the dream that they've come up with that they feel most moved to work with right there at that point, we can turn that into the thing called a fishbone diagram or an Ishikawa diagram. Yes. What you can do with a smallish team is use that for goals or desired outcomes. So you put Mm. your goal in the head of the fish, you put each area that you need to think about which which would contribute to achieving that goal. So it might be, as I say, might be training, might be HR, might be finance, might be marketing, might be production. Each one of those is a spine of the fish. You draw this out on a sheet of A4 paper, put it on the table, the team gets around the table, and all of the things that you need to take into account and all of the action steps that you might need to take in a particular area to get to that goal, 
they write them on little post-it notes and stick them on the relevant spine of the fish. So you end up with a load of action steps and a load of things to watch out for, things that might trip you up, things that you need to take into account, stuck to each spine of the fish. Great. Now, that's not a plan yet. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of mass or a cloud almost of things you'll need to do or things you need to take account of. So what you can then do to turn it into a plan is draw a number of horizontal lines on another piece of A4 or maybe even a big roll of uh, lining paper because it's probably going to be quite long. Mm -hmm. So going along that roll is time and each of these lines is one of the spines of the fish. So Mm -hmm. production, marketing, training, finance, etc. So you take all of your post-its from each spine of the fish, you put them in the relevant swim lanes yes, diagram. Yes, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. You put each of your post-its in the order that they need to happen. So if, if there are dependencies, Good. you order them within those swim lanes going right up to your goal at the right-hand side of the swim lane. And then if there are dependencies between areas, you can adjust your post-it notes to take account of that. And what you end up with is pretty much like a Gantt chart or an action plan. And people can take their responsibilities or assign responsibilities for who's going to make each bit happen. And you've got a high level action plan in a very short time, maybe an hour or so. So I, I really love that method for working with groups. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. It's, um, it makes it very practical and it really would satisfy the kinesthetic people in the group, right? <laughs> Getting up uh, there. Yes, it would, definitely, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I've actually got a blog post about that which I can send a, a link to oh, you Oh, do, yeah. We'll put that on the show notes. Yes, you're reminding me, what did we do before Post-it Notes? <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, um, Jürgen Burkessel, who's my partner, and he does a lot of um, value proposition stuff with clients, particularly in the digital strategy area, he has an mm-hmm. app that, that you can photograph these post-it notes and then you can do amazing things with them. So you can reposition them and what looks a real mess on a value proposition diagram, for example, or maybe on your fish bone diagram, yep. is then there is a way to actually then order it. I want to know about that app. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I, uh, maybe I'll put that on the show notes too. So because That would be great. Is there anything else that you want to bring up that we haven't had a chance to talk about right now? If I could just share... Two more ideas for use in AI processes that uh, have been borrowed really from NLP that uh, your listeners might find useful. Splendid. One is in the design stage where people are coming up with ways of achieving some aspect of the dream or bringing it closer. There's a a great strategy created by Robert Dilt's uh, model from Walt Disney for creativity Mm -hmm. called the Disney strategy. Broadly, it's a way of getting around that thing of somebody comes up with an idea and immediately somebody else says, oh, yeah, that won't work because. Mm -hmm. And then they come up with another idea and someone else says, oh, yeah, but that's not going to work because of this, this and this. So these, these poor ideas are kind of taxiing along the runway and they get shot down before they get off the ground. Whereas really in creative kind of brainstorming, you want as many ideas as possible because an idea that's completely rubbish or unworkable may lead to another idea that leads to another idea that sparks off an idea that's going to save your organization. So to get around that, 
what Walt Disney used to do apparently and what Robert Diltz has kind of codified this model is doing is you divide the creative process into three stages. The dreamer stage where you just come up with as many ideas as possible. The implementer or realist stage where you think about how can we make this work? Not what could go wrong with it, but how do we make it work? So you're focusing on how will it work in practice? What are you going to do to make it work? Mm -hmm. And then only then do you come in with the third stage, which is the critic stage, which mm-hmm. is what could go wrong with this? Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, I like to throw in towards the end of an appreciative inquiry process if there's a specific action that people have come up with, but only after it's been created and it's got some legs. That's, that's probably one of the more useful ones, I think. I think that's great. And maybe we can have a reference to that one too. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I believe I have a. Uh, I'm, I must have a blog post for that somewhere. So I'll. We'll do. Uh, yeah, this is great. We can include those. Aren't you doing a training coming up soon? I am doing a training. Yeah, I was. I was. Uh, I wasn't sure whether it was okay to mention it, mm-hmm. but uh, since you ask, uh, yeah, on the nineteenth and twentieth of February in uh, London, in central London. I'm running a two-day practical appreciative inquiry facilitated course, which is aimed to really get people started with using appreciative inquiry, giving them everything they need to get started using AI with both one-to-one coaching and also working with teams or even organizations. And of course, it's, it's the start of the journey you learn as you go along, uh, you learn from experience, uh, you read up more about it. But... AI itself as a method is is pretty simple and easy to use as long as you're aware of the principles that underpin it. Mm, I totally agree. And once you get to know those principles, you begin to understand the depth of it. You can begin to integrate it. Is there anything else you'd like to say right now before we sign off? I'd just like to remind people of a principle that comes up in NLP, which is also very relevant to appreciative inquiry, which is that we have within us, I believe, everything we need to make the changes that we want to. And and we could look at that at an individual level, at a team level, at an organizational level. That may or may not be true, but if we assume that it is true and we act as if it's true, then we're not going to be limiting ourselves. We're not going to be placing a, a glass ceiling on our ambitions or our achievements. So we've got more chance of actually fulfilling our potential if we realise that we already have all the resources within us that we need. That is such a beautiful way to end. Thank you for saying that, Andy, and thanks for being with me today. Well, thank you. Andy's given us many ideas about how we can access our most resourceful states, And that usually implies how we can ramp up the positivity in our lives. So for our Positivity Lens activity this week, go to the show notes page for this episode, and that's positivitystrategist.com slash PS21, and download the Positivity Lens activity sheet. And you know that you'll find all the references to this show, to this particular episode on that page. So to your practice this week, I invite you to consider the following. How might you reframe, or reframe I should say, how might you reframe some of your usual habitual responses to your own behaviours or the behaviours of others that ordinarily you might perceive as negative or unsupportive? For example, what about reframing mistakes into surprises or learning opportunities? 
And why not start a surprise journal and be surprised by what you learn about all the different situations and people and yourself? And if you agree that you have everything within yourself to be successful, name three of your strengths as a starting point to build on. And that could be empathy or leadership or creativity. Also, you can be notified of new episodes by email. Links to all these suggestions are available on positivitystrategist.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and remember, what you focus on grows, so grow towards your best.